Very, very pleased, excited, and honored to uh, bring to you today Dr. Robert Thurman on his third visit to Google, uh, where he will be talking about his new graphic novel about the Dalai Lama, The Man of Peace. Um, Dr. Thurman uh, was the first American to don Buddhist garb in 1962, <laughs> the, first, uh, the first Buddhist monk uh, from, from the U.S. Uh, eventually became a professor at American University and now is the J. Tsongkhapa Professor of Indo-Tibetan Studies at Columbia University in New York. He's a close personal friend of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which is the subject of today's talk, and also the father of uh, Uma Thurman, who you may have seen in the movies. Um, he's a prolific author. He also hosts a weekly podcast uh, that you can find from bobthurman.com. And uh, as I said, this is his third visit to Google. Uh, we're happy to welcome him back and hope that he can come on many future occasions. Without any further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Bob Thurman. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. That's really very kind. And I love being at Google. And I actually love Google. I always did. You know, I like the, I like the way the letters are, the colors of the letters. They're like the colors of the five, what we call the five archetype Buddhas, I call them. The Dhyani Buddhas, or meditational Buddhas. In the sort of mandalas, you know. You know, blue, red, yellow, green. And, uh, and the white is in the spaces in between. <laughs> so I do I love Google. That's good. And that's, I'm sure you all are daily reminding yourself how you should be doing no evil, right? <laughs> Which was one of the founding things, you know. So anyway, I'm very, and thank you for inviting me to come and talk to you all about um, the, our latest production of, um, of the um, life of the Dalai Lama in the graphic novel form. And it's actually a graphic biography, in fact, but we call it a graphic novel because we don't want, you know, in case we were a little undiplomatic in any element or whatever it was, we didn't, we wanted His Holiness to have um, deniability, you know, <laughs> that it was our mistake or something if we'd make a mistake. But I have showed it to him and he liked it. Actually, I gave it to him during the Kalachakra initiation, the last one that he did. Uh, which may not, will not be the last one he will do, but the last one he did in Bodh Gaya in January in India. And uh, my wife called me excitedly um, um, the, later that day in that, you know, he was live streaming it and he would say it was the preparatory rituals, what's called the self-initiation rituals where they build up the, the cosmic mandala in which then the ceremony takes place in the following days. And... Um, he was doing the, he was in the ritual, the monks were chanting and they were making the mandala and the whole thing. And I, and he called me over to him in the middle of the thing. There's only a few people in there because it's the preparatory thing. He called me over to greet him, as I did, and then I gave him a copy of the book and put it down. He looked at it and then he went back to the ritual. And it was therefore on the table nearby his ritual implements, you know. And so my wife called me and said, Oh, you know, he was doing the ritual, chanting and meditating. And then he sort of looked over, you know, and he saw the sort. And after, you know, afterwards, and then he picked it up, and he was like, "Look!" <laughs> and then suddenly he remembered that it was live streamed. They don't even do the ritual. He put it down, back in the ritual. She was so thrilled, and uh, I was happy. I was a little worried and nervous because, you know, it was not a thing where precisely, you know, I did it uh, because he wouldn't show himself. You see, in the book, he's shown in a sort of heroic way. 
because he is a hero. He's one of our world heroes, really. And even we're not Buddhists and we don't think of him as our Dalai Lama, that he's the Tibetan Dalai Lama. And Dalai means ocean or vast. And it was a name given to the third Dalai Lama by a Mongolian uh, emperor. And um, although the, the Mongolians had never seen the ocean, that particular one, but you know, the step, the great step is like an ocean of grass, you know, so Dalai means like that huge. And the idea is ocean of wisdom and compassion, you know, that, that's the idea of Dalai Lama. Lama just means guru, you know, in Tibetan. But in a way, Tibetan uh, translation of guru into Lama shows how Tibetans refined the Buddhist side of ancient Indian culture, in a sense. It's kind of very instructive, in the sense that guru comes from the Indian word, Sanskrit word, for heavy which reflects the patriarchal nature of Indian society, you know, the, the heavy on top of your head, you know, like weighing you down. And, um, and uh, whereas Lama means someone you can't get past. It means you can't get beyond. So I always like to say, instead of uh, some sort of heavy weight on top of your head, is like a, a, a real a good guru is really like Tar Baby. You know, in the old, what comic was that? Was that Pogo or something? It was some ancient thing. Prayer Rabbit. Rabbit, that's it. And Tar Baby is like, you try to, Tar Baby's there, and you want to get rid of him, you don't want Guru bugging you and following you around all the time and making you do whatever you're supposed to do. And so you, you want to get rid of it, but then Tar Baby was, you would grab Tar Baby, get rid of him, and then you'd be stuck to him, you know. You couldn't, like, you couldn't eliminate him, so you couldn't get past him. So, so the key point in the Tibetan thing is they realize that the teacher is not just a weight on top of your head, and the, the whole thing is not just to sort of revere the teacher, although they do, but it is to ex execute the teaching that the teacher gives you and become the teacher yourself. So that's what the guru wants you to do that, you know. And in Buddhism, in Indian civilization, the guru role was somewhat um, undermined by the exoteric idea of the teacher as uh, Kalyana Mitra, what they call, which means a virtuous friend. So the idea of a teacher is like a friend who inspires you rather than an authority who sits on top of you, you know which might have been the norm in ordinary Indian culture before Buddha's time, you know. He was a bit of a rebel, the Buddha, you know. He didn't, he didn't do what his dad told him, you know, to be a king, you know. He went off to become enlightened, whatever that is. And his dad did what dads do when, when young men uh, or women don't do what they say, locked him up <laughs> and sent in some Brahmin priest psychiatrists, you know, to try to get him to shape up to be a king. And so what he did, what, what, what rugged individuals do, he escaped huh? and went off into the jungle. So anyway, so 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 anyway, that's it. So Dalai Lama, that's what Dalai Lama means. And then nowadays we're in a time in the world, which you all know very very well, and actually your company is very very important in this time in the world, to toward a successful outcome, which we are going to have. You know, we are we have to have. You know, and uh, <clears throat> because we. We owe that to the future generations. And also, we'll be back in future lives. And we don't want to live in a slag heap or have to migrate to a different planet, you know. And um, I guarantee you that that is the case. I know that many of you are scientifically oriented. Computer science is a big thing around here and so forth. I know that. And you may have fallen for the modern materialist legend that you only live this once, this one life. But, you know, that's the one thing that is at the base of materialism as a philosophical view, which is underlies modern science. But actually, it is the one thing that has no evidence 
and it's nothing but a blind faith belief, if you actually think about it. And you know that right away from your common sense. What is one thing that no one will ever discover, no scientist will ever discover? What is one thing that we know for sure will never be discovered? Nothing. <laughs> How about nothing? Who's going to ever discover nothing? And is anybody going to give them a Nobel Prize for that? No way. So the idea that someone is going to become nothing just by the wetware, you know, what John Perry Barlow calls meat space, just because the meat, meat level, you know, the brain, the body, will cease at some time, but the subtle energy of consciousness, that that then suddenly becomes nothing. It's the one thing in the universe that doesn't have continuity, like the law of thermodynamics, you know, the non-destruction of energy. It's the one energy that just becomes nothing. And the idea to become nothing when nothing is nothing. <laughs> can you do that? Right? No one can ever do that. So therefore, the foundation of materialism, which is supposed to be rational and evidence-based, is blind faith. It can't be anything other than blind faith. Cooked up by people who were scared by preachers that, you know, if they did this and that, you know, they would might end up in hell, which is very unpleasant, you know. It's the ma- massive, the most unpleasant thing you can imagine, you know. But once, once the future is open-ended and perhaps endless, anything is possible, right? So then naturally it's a little scary, right? Meanwhile, those materialists have convinced you, and we can almost debate this in the question period, that uh, nothingness is real and sort of the discovery and science knows that because why science went and put some electrodes on some piece of meat's brain you know like a dead person dead body and they didn't find any action going on in there so nobody ever said the mind was still in the body the person is dead so that's not a discovery the nothing is nothing can't be discovered so it's only asserted out of faith that you won't have a worry about your future. Now, the reason I mentioned that, that is primal. That's the foundation of the, of the Buddhist biology. The foundation of Buddhist biology, not Buddhist religion or Buddhist faith, Buddhist biology, is that life is endless. And therefore, it is our duty always to make it better for ourselves and others. Because we, and for example, an enemy, you know, Wyatt Earp walks into town, you know, draws his pistol and blows away somebody. But from Buddhist point of view, from the Buddhist science point of view, that person is not gone. They just are deprived of a body. And then they're really annoyed with you because you just shot them. So they're going to find a womb in a neighboring town. They're going to grow up and practice shooting and they're going to come get you. So, so therefore, it's, there must be another way of dealing with them, like having a chat, you know, getting to know them on Facebook. Or maybe I shouldn't mention that, whatever, Google, Google chat. Sorry, having a Google chat with them, you know. Because we're all entangled, in other words, entanglement of life is endless and infinite. And therefore, we never get away from the consequences of how we treat people. And therefore, we should always treat them better. That's, it's, just, it's all, it flows right out of their biological view. And the biological view is, and also Buddha's time, and actually most of the Asian people, they were not like the creationists nowadays in supposedly advanced modern society who are terrified of the idea that they somehow might be connected to a chimpanzee and so therefore genetically and so therefore they have these they have these dioramas in San Diego in places where they show Adam 
And Adam is, of course, blonde and blue-eyed or slightly reddish tinged with a little bit of a beard. He's lying on the ground like this. And he has like a wound in his rib, you know, where they popped out the lady who was supposed to wash the dishes. You know? <laughs> I mean, come on. It's too silly, you know. And, and so any, any, anybody in, the, in Buddhist science or Buddhist biology, they're perfectly cool with chimpanzee. And not only do they not mind being connected to chimpanzee, but everybody realizes that at some previous time in the beginningless sequence of lives, they were personally were chimpanzees. We've all been chimpanzees. And then if we behave like a chimpanzee now, there's a danger we might gravitate toward the chimpanzee again in the future. And that wouldn't be cool. You could not definitely do a Google chat as a chimpanzee. <laughs> you would just break your, break your, you'd break your Android, you know. <clears throat> or you'd try to eat it, maybe. So, so anyway, this is by way of introduction of the man of peace, the Dalai Lama, who is, you know, the main thing about this book, and um, why do I like the Dalai Lama? I've known him for 53 years, met him in 64. And over these 53 years, what I can give him credit for, I, I, I can't say that by studying with him and knowing him being his friend and studying with his teachers too, which I did, um, that I'm enlightened because I still, you know, I have to check with my wife how enlightened I am and I don't quite get a full pedigree. You know, I don't have the PhD of enlightenment from my wife quite yet. Oh, my children. Oh, wow, not at all. <laughs> and I'm a carpenter, and I built a house. In, in um, I'm building my own house. It started in 1972 and still not quite finished. And my son made a motto for me, which is, fits me as a teacher, too, so you know, don't expect too much. And he said, my dad's motto is, why do it right when you can do it yourself? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very proud of that. People, when I tell that to people, they don't, some people in sort of more authoritarian societies, they don't laugh. They look like, oh, son is talking like that about his dad, that's really terrible. And they, they, what's the matter with that dad that he's proud of it, you know? So, anyway, so what, what he has done for me over these years, the Dalai Lama, is he's helped me. I mean, he hasn't done it single handed. You know, I have a really wise and wonderful wife, and I've had really great kids. And I had an old, some other older teachers than him who were also really good teachers. But um, he's cheered me up. You know, I don't, I'm less depressed. And uh, although when you look at the world or you watch CNN for a few minutes, you, you really take a nosedive about what's actually going on as far as being unpractical and unrealistic and asinine on this planet, you know, reverting to things like racisms and things like that that supposedly were over like a long time ago, completely into it, you know. And um, it's leaders, you know. But I think the people are not. I think the mass of our people are still good. I, I find that, you know, the Dalai Lama helps me see that. He, he himself, people are always surprised about him because the Tibetan people have suffered a great deal, a kind of neo-colonial uh, situation with their big neighbor. Um, which is really not their fault. It's just the way the world system works. So the system of militarism and consumerism, industrial, industrializing. Really, you know, we think of industrialization as an automatic good thing. Like, you know, Google do no evil. Industrial information and search and interconnection of people. And I think it is actually a very good thing. But any good thing can be messed up. And the problem always still remains if you industrialize negative mental states. And in the, the Buddhists would say, ignorant delusion, you know, um, 
greed based on that ignorant delusion and hatred or anger based on that delusion and then jealousy and pride and they have a whole long list but those are the main ones so if you take the two most important ones after the basic delusion you have you have greed and anger or greed and, greed and hatred and greed magnifies into industrial consumerism and we see what that's doing it's destroying the planet you know climate climate change which luckily the governor of Florida assures us it's not happening. <laughs> right after Irma, it's not happening, you know. Rick Scott, you know, luckily. So, thank goodness. And, uh, and when we, we, it is happening, right? And it's very dangerous. And we're continuing to add to it very badly. And then hatred magnifies industrially into militarism. And, you know, look at this whole thing with the, with the two hair, I call it the two hairdos. The two hairdos, the two hairdo confrontation. You know, Kim Jong-un with his dark little, like, whatever that is, little mountain, and then the guy with the fox who bit him on the head, you know. The wild fox, you know. That's not my joke. Somebody made that joke. And they're, like, going to do each other in, you know. Meanwhile, they both need decent hairdressers, you know. <laughs> anyway, or be, be content to be a bit bold. So... So that's a militarism, and huge budget to militarism, you know, enormous, and it really could destroy us all in the in the flick of a switch. But, you know, as one of my Tibetan teachers used to say, you know, if you want to take a scientific description of a nuclear or hydrogen bomb or a nuclear holocaust, you would have all these things with uranium and plutonium and this and that trigger mechanisms and then all the, you know, E equals MC squared and whatever. You know, the instability of the atoms, the per impermanence of the actual instability and the, the, the fact that life is something that you have to surf, you know. You can't control and, and, and hold it rigidly. You have to learn to, like, flow with it. And, um, and he said that, however, people don't put in, the primary ingredient of such a thing is hatred in the human mind. It is hatred that builds up, the, that has to have a war, that builds up the idea of another enemy that has to be exterminated, that then like goes into the brilliant mathematics and chemistry and whatever involved, you know, to end up with a, with a destructive weapon like the nuclear weapon, you know. So hatred is the key original component, and I don't know what the chemical formula for hatred is, but it connects the bile in the in meat space in the human body, as as Tibetan medicine will say, and it's very very dangerous, obviously. So. So that's really the cause of the total disaster of Tibet of the last 65 years. But, you know, the good side of that disaster is that the Dalai Lama has become well known to the world, and the world has a chance of being cheered up, including the world, including China, has a chance of being cheery and cheered up. And so that's the virtue of this book. And um, I did write a book before this, um, before the last time I visited here, called uh, the, Why the Dalai Lama Matters in which sort of just in words I kind of depicted the process of how the Dalai Lama, who, you know, it, is, it isn't a question of whether he really is that or not. You know, other non-Buddhist people, non-Tibetan people even, you know, they may be Buddhists, but they don't necessarily believe the way the Tibetans believe about the Dalai Lama. But still, the fact that there is a form of uh, world belief system that they believe that the equivalent of their Jesus, if to use the Christian thing, is still here, you know, the the Christians with the rapture thing and the thing, they're waiting for him to come back, right? And meanwhile, they're playing golf and they have this, they're, they have the Baptist church and the whatever Catholic church, they're trying to like make the best of a that difficult situation. 
and often the institutions actually add to the difficult situation by forgetting what their job really is, which is to serve their followers, not to own them. And then they, they get become competitive, the religious institutions do. But point is that um, the Jesus figure in the Buddhist thing is Avalokiteshvara, you know, the savior figure, and is always there. So that's kind of irritating. You know, you know, do you have those books, you know, what would Jesus do? What would Buddha do? Well, you have to write, they write a book like that, and you think, well, I should be nice, but I don't feel like it today. So luckily, Jesus is not here, and later I can, like, I can make peace, and I can confess and repent. And same with Buddha, the Buddhist thing. But if Jesus was right there, well, you'd be a little more under pressure, wouldn't you? Something like that. So you'd have to try to be better, you know, because the person is right there. So that, it's a culture like that. And in a way, therefore, Dalai Lama reminds us, in his presence, being, being a worldwide celebrity that he is, in those, you know, um, Reuters, um, International Times, you know, um, um, Gallup poll, or whatever they are, these polls, worldwide polls, Dalai Lama always is up in the top ten. You know, sometimes he's neck and neck with Angelina Jolie. Sometimes he's neck and neck with the Pope. Sometimes he's, you know, particular Popes. Some of the Popes were not so high on the list, but the present one is very, very high. And uh, he always wins that, which is kind of amazing. And if you, did any of you see the John Oliver little thing on the last week tonight or yesterday or whatever it is? It's something, time thing. He went and interviewed the Dalai Lama. And there, at one point early in the introduction to the actual interview in India that he did, which I advise, it's on YouTube, you love it if you see it, it's very funny and very nice and, and shows the personality of the Dalai Lama. And uh, they asked some people in Times Square or something, like, what, what do you think about the Dalai Lama? And they said, oh, he's, he's great, he's nice. And they were going like that, and they said, well, what does he do, or who, where is he? I don't know. <laughs> no, they had no idea, you know. But they, somehow they just liked him, you know. But the reason they like him is that he is kind of this kind of super um, celebrity authority. And yet he says, peace is possible. And we're going to have it, actually. And yet he's been in a situation where his people have been ethnicited and are still being, you know, ethnically cleansed, you could say, trying to sinicize, you know, assimilated, which won't work, actually, ever. It hasn't worked in 55 years, and it's not going to work. But anyway, they still add it, you know, some old-fashioned people. Just like in our country, some old-fashioned people think the Pentagon is going to save us and another $100 billion, $200 billion bunch of aircraft carriers or something, which is completely silly. As you guys know, you can hack an aircraft carrier and it'll take its own gun and shoot itself in the foot, which would make it sink, as you know. You guys know better than I do, that sort of thing, Right. So it's a silly, why are we spending all that money? It's completely asinine, instead of hiring some good hackers and going out and finding anonymous and having them work for the good guys. <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. But anyway, they're still in charge of this thing, you know, even though the people are not really wanting that. And, and then it's like, takes the Dalai Lama, like in my case, when I'm so upset about Iraq invasion or something like that, which I really was, but not to mention the coup d'etat that put... that kicked out Al Gore, who was Mr. Cute, you know, earth in the balance, let's save the, let's save the inconvenient truth, you know, who should have been our president. Remember, he was our president in exile for eight years while we wrecked, when, well, Darth Cheney wrecked the whole place and uh, wrecked their Middle East totally. It didn't see the mess that it is now. And um, uh, when I was upset like that, Dalai Lama pointed out to me, well, you know, it's too bad this went like that, but it was a big mistake, sure. But, uh, and it won't have a bad, real bad effect, sure. But 
You know, a hundred years ago, all of the people, like in the beginning of the, ni- of the 1900s, you know, the 20th century, the world's people more or less expected that some warriors would win something somewhere, and that would decide how the world worked, you know. So the war was looked, to, uh, looked at as the ultimate arbiter of, like, how the structure of things, you know. And, you know, we're just coming, British colonial, the British Empire, you know, just coming to an end, Victoria, just the end of the 19th century, right? So, so, and the people all agreed that, you know, that they had to have that because that's how things are decided in the world. Whereas at the end of the 20th century, even though there's still all this ridiculous arms trade that is a really huge economic thing, and, and you know, we, we hear about terrible things in Africa, Liberia, you know, and uh, the kid children, soldiers shooting everybody and, and horrible atrocities and things. But we don't really hear about the arms dealers who flew in seven helicopter loads of Kalashnikovs and machine guns, etc., to create a horrible disaster so they could run in and grab a lot of diamonds and things like that. We don't hear how it, what, what the real reasoning of that. Otherwise, people might be having fist fights in the street, some uncontrolled people, but they wouldn't be doing these bloodbaths that they do. So... So I'm saying, he pointed out to me that the people in the world don't agree. Everybody knows, says subliminally. I think really in 1945, we learned it at that misdeed of Truman. I can't forget Truman, forgive Truman, not only because when I meet sometimes some Japanese people and they hear Thurman, they think it maybe is Truman and they give me a certain kind of a look. Not only that, but also that, you know, okay, he wanted to show there was an atom bomb existed, but he could have dropped, it would have been bad for the fish in Tokyo Bay. But he could have dropped the first couple in the bay. You know, I just never can forgive our country for dropping it on all these little ladies in kimonos who really could care less about Iwo Jima and so on, you know. It wasn't their fault, you know. They were completely subjugated by a fascist government. And uh, why drop it on those people? I think that really was something sad, you know, I personally. I don't know how you feel. But the point is, the minute that happened, what, what was the subliminal message around the world? Subliminal message around the world was that your own atoms are filled with a limitless energy that could completely pulverize you in a split second if they were caught in a certain kind of chain reaction. So suddenly people's sense of I'm so solid and my possession is solid and my land and my nation and everything is nothing is solid, you know. Everything is like fluid, you know. It's like surfing in California. Life is, you know. You can't pin it down or you'll be trashed by a wave. And I think sort of subtle impermanence entered the unconscious of the entire planet, I really think so. A lot of people in denial, of course, of what has entered their unconscious, but I'm not saying everybody's aware of that like that. But from that point on, who has won any war anywhere? Has there anybody... People always say about the Dalai Lama, well, he's so cute and nice, that's why I've written the recent several books about him, including this one. He's so nice and sweet, I love to see him, hear about the Dharma, it's really great. But his political thing, it's impractical, non-violence, how can that work internationally? And how can you get free and save people from being pushed around by authoritarian governments, by non-violence? That's really silly. You know, even nowadays we have the wonderful resistance, you know, like that went to Washington in inauguration, the pussy hat march. I love it. It's so great. The women showing determination and getting out there. But happily, that, that, that march was happy. People were cheerful and joyful. And then yet some of them, there are some people on, quote, the left, who are like Antifa. They want to break some windows and throw some rocks, and they want to counter violence with violence. That's really stupid. In fact, the, the FBI used to send people in 68 in the riots. You know, Herbert Hoover used to send 
agent provocateur. The, the oppressive force will send a violent protester in a nonviolent situation to discredit the protesters, you know, and the resistance, the democratic resistance. So for, for the left, for the, for the resisting people who want sanity in the country and in the government and, and lack of, in, you know, overcoming the injustices and the inequality, for them to do violence is just to get discredited. You know? So the point is, now the people in the world realize that war is useless. They don't want it. They want daycare centers. You know, they want education. They don't want mass incarceration. They want education. You know, in South Carolina, they don't have any many schools. You know, and colleges and so forth. And they have bad schools for the black population. And they have tons of prisons. And they rush into high school classes and try to, even they'll plant some pot or something on somebody or some crack and then haul them off to prison so they won't be able to vote. It's just an attempt to reestablish racist, uh, you know, Jim Crow and so forth. And they, and they have done it successfully, so seemingly. So nobody, but nobody really wants this. The mass of the people don't want it, but the minorities are hyperactive because they're not happy. Because, and they're blaming their unhappiness on the wrong causes. And of course, the people who are causing the unhappiness, certain oligarch types, are purposely do that to divide the people who they're oppressing. That's a t- strat- standard strategy. But then, so then I get really upset, to get back on message, I get really upset, and now he's invading Iraq, it's all going wrong, it's terrible, we're not going to have a century of peace. And the Dalai Lama reminds me that yes, the leadership is all crazed still, Putin, Trump, you know, like whatever, whoever you have. But the people don't want it. It's just they don't do what the people want. You know, and we now are like that and supposedly the bastion of democracy. You know, 80%, 70% of the people want Medicare for all. But they, oh, that's impossible. Oh, no, we can't do that. The owners and their contributors say no. What they're, they're not going to do what their constituents want. That's a definition of non-democracy, Right? So, but that, but the, but the mass of the people are there, and they, and we will prevail. The Dalai Lama reminds me, so he cheers me up, so I don't get despaired. If you think that it will never work, you get despaired, and that also is one of the causes of the problem, right? How many people voted in the last election? That this one that has gone so badly awry. How many people voted? Less than seventy, right? I think sixty-two or something. Was it as much as sixty? And of those. Hundreds of thousands were disqualified by interstate cross-check, by various mechanisms within the 30s Republican states, where you have Republican secretaries of state who count the votes. As Stalin famously said, it isn't just a matter of who, how many and who votes and what they vote for, it's who counts them. <laughs> he, he was quite aware of that. So, so uh, because he was counting them. And uh, he somehow kept winning in spite of sending half the intelligent people to the gulag. So he cheers you up. So this book is to cheer you up. I'm sorry. I'm, if I've made you gloomy by talking about the mess, I apologize. Because the whole point is to be cheered up. But you have to face it. You have to resist it. Joyfully. You joyfully resist, you will succeed. You happily resist, you will succeed. You will, I, I, I gave talks at Occupy Wall Street. I gave a couple of talks. And they liked it and they were going like this. And I was explaining to them that actually down there with their drum circle... This and that. Well, they weren't very well fed and so forth. And they were a little bit cold at night and they were sleeping in garbage bags and things. But, then, you know, that's sort of like camping out, you know. But the people upstairs in the comfortable rooms and the leather chairs who were scared of them and also scared of the market going this way and lose a billion dollars in three minutes and whatever, you know, 
those people were just as stressed out, if not more so. And they shouldn't hate them. You know, the people they were protesting against. They shouldn't, you know, we've had, uh, you know, 18th, 19th century, 20th, early 20th century, we've had a lot of violent revolutions. And always the violent revolution turns out that the people who get to the top by violence are then more oppressive than the previous ones, who maybe were born into being on the top and learned a little noblesse oblige, maybe some, not all of them. I'm not saying that, but, but you know, it gets worse and worse, in other words, by violence, as Buddha, Jesus, the Yadnya Valkya, Confucius, everybody's has said that for thousands of years, and people, um, Socrates said so, to Themistocles, and we're, we're still not listening, you know, but, but the people have listened. Like, nobody here wants a war with anybody. Nobody at Google, I'm sure, wants a war. Right? And how, and you are, we are a majority of people. We don't want a war. They can get in and they can, like, do fake news and, they can get some Russian hacker to put some news about this and that. Hillary Clinton is eating human flesh, or God knows what they wrote out there. But, but you know that that ultimately we'll clean that up. That won't happen, and uh, we'll have this thing. So, so here what we see is this young boy, who was a peasant's son, in uh, in right in the border between Mongolians, Tibetans, and Chinese, with some Turks also. Some Muslim Turks in there too, in a really pluralistic fringe area of northeast Tibet or northwest China, how China would call it. Um, and he's born right there, which was perfect because his predecessor in previous incarnation, the 13th Dalai Lama, had visited Mongolia and uh, and Beijing when when the British invaded in 190 between 1904 and 1908 and 9, and he he realized that's a frontier, sort of Tibet's frontier with the other Asian people anyway, and that's the first Dalai Lama who met a lot of foreigners and began to realize about the modern nation system and the, and also the industrial militarism being a great danger to his country and also the fact that Buddhism was not everybody's worldview. And so he began the process that then this present Dalai Lama has done where he has become kind of, he's made this teaching of world peace through inner peace, which is his slogan, and his common human religion of kindness is his is another one of his slogans. And those are ancient Buddhist views. You know, Buddhism, some, some Western religion scholars say Buddhism was the first missionary religion uh, because Buddhism spread in many, many cultures and countries. India itself is many countries. It was never one country. It was subcontinent, you know, with many languages and things. And then it spread all over Asia. And it, 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 when it leaked to the West Asia also, through Iran and so on, Manichaeism, you know, which was a version of Christianity, was they considered Buddha one of their their ancestors, you know, not just Jesus. Buddha, Zoroaster, and Jesus were the Manichaeans, and that had an influence even on Christianity. So it had a, it spread a lot, so they say it's missionary. But it wasn't missionary in the sense that it never had a crusade, you know, forcing people to become Buddhist by force, never did that. So they've had wars and they were bad Buddhists, but they never did it for Buddhism. They just did it for, you know, people did it not, not being Buddhist. And, um, which is a difference, which is a little bit of on the plus side. And basically Buddhism always moved with commerce, with merchants, because it wasn't into the military thing. It was into trade, you know, and people engaging. Buddha himself was a trader to the military class, which he should have been a conqueror in. Um, and he favored the merchant class, actually. His main supporters were merchants. Because the moving, shifting the acquisition of wealth from military conquest to 
merchant trade is a huge step forward in history because the great thing about the, 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 the preference for merchants is you have your customer there, you try to make a good deal, then you come back the next time and they bring up something else you can trade for and wealth is generally being created at both ends. And then there's a little negotiating that goes on. The problem with the military one is you kill your customer right away and take everything. And then there's nothing to trade with the next time, you know, just whatever you can do. And that's kind of short term, you know, a bit too short term, the piratical version of, of, of commerce. So Buddha did that. And tremendous wealth arose in Asia in those days, therefore, and that's why the Europeans were so bent on conquering Asia, actually, if you know the history. And that's why also they succeeded. Chinese invented gunpowder, but they did not use it in warfare until they were invaded by people who did. But they invented it. They invented the compass. They had ships that were ten times bigger than Columbus's ships, and they went to the New World and to Africa. And they brought elephants and things back. And uh, those were trans people, actually, who did that, interestingly. The ones who had to, made those ships were eunuchs, you know. They were kind of trans, you know. But there were a large bunch of them, and they were more creative and intelligent than the regular mandarins, you know. And then they were, their program was scrapped. But the point is, they didn't try to settle down or expand like the Europeans and, and commit genocide on the native people, etc., or enslave the African people. They didn't do that. So, so they're, therefore, they're the people who were conquered in centuries of colonialism were the more civilized people. Someday people will write history like that. That's what I think. They don't now. They think that European was superior because they were the better bullies. But that's really, we don't think that on the street. There's a mafia who comes down in protection racket. We don't think they're superior. But we might be scared of them and pay. But we don't think they're superior or more civilized. Not at all. So, point is, we reached a point in history where we've outsmarted ourselves. So we can't win wars. All we get is ter- endless terrorism if we, because we don't, you know, we obliterate the whole countries if we really fight them, like Iraq, you know. And then all you get is chaos and terrorism. You don't get Iraq. Cheney lied to us all and said we would get oil that would pay for the war, pay for the invasion, remember? But then once Iraq was uh, had a new Shiite government, they wouldn't give us a decent oil contract. The French, the Russians, the Chinese got all the good, and the British and so forth, the Italians got all the good oil contracts, not us. Because they were angry with us, naturally. We wrecked their entire place, their whole country. You know? So so that's that's why war is no longer possible, and Dalai Lama reminds us of that, and therefore it cheers us up. And uh, it shows his whole adventure. I'm, I you know Nixon and Kissinger, you know, I don't shy away from them. There they are. Oh, wait, it's 45 minutes? Okay. So... So anyway, and it ends. It ends now. One of the things I wanted to show everyone, which I like to show, is on page two sixty-five. I have the story of Xi Jinping to show one of the one of the roots of the Dalai Lama. My optimism. Dalai Lama doesn't really put so many eggs in this basket, but I do. Xi Jinping. You see him there, and here he is here, and you, this picture is the 19-year-old Dalai Lama in 1954, or rather this is the present Dalai Lama, remembering being the 19-year-old Dalai Lama, when he was a good friend, one of his good friends in the Chinese uh, government, you know, elite at that time, communist elite, at the beginning of the uh, communist uh, PRC, was a man called Xi Zhongsheng, who just happened to be the father of Xi Jinping. And, and Xi Jinping himself was born in 1953, so he was one year old at that time. 
So, and Xi Jinping's father worked with Hu Yaobang, those of you who know something about Chinese history, who was distinguished in the Tibetan mind by having decided that from 1951 or 50, when the first invasion began by the Red Army, to 1980, they had made a terrible mess in Tibet. You know, the, the thought reform class struggle, all of this, you know, the architect occupy, the t- cutting all the trees in the eastern part, so on. Never mind. I won't go into detail. But they made a terrible mess in destroying 6,000 monasteries, killing lots of people. And so Xi Zhongzhong and Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang, who people have more heard of, um, those three were trying to make a nice policy, and that was a period of relaxation of four or five years in the early 80s in Tibet, when they started rebuilding those monasteries that tourists now visit. Because otherwise they were all flattened. And before the Cultural Revolution, that was. And, uh, but then more so during the Cultural Revolution. And then, um, he was busted by Deng when Deng got older and hardened about it and decided he had to crush them. And, um, he didn't want to, especially he was frightened by the Soviet Union melting down and losing Kazakhstan and the Baltics and all this. So he said, Tibet should be like, uh, Lithuania, not like Estonia, not like Latvia and Lithuania. In other words, we should be filled, we should settle totally colonially settled China, uh, Tibet, which has not been possible anyway because of the altitude. But that he wanted to do that. And so, so that's Xi Jinping's father and that's Xi Jinping, one year old baby. And he's getting a blessing from Dalai Lama, but not officially because those are the early time of the communist thing. You can't ask for a blessing in a way, except from Mao. It's the only guy who can give you a blessing. But still, he's getting a blessing, of course. And he really, they were great friends. And the Dalai Lama gave him a gold watch that somebody had given Dalai Lama. And he, the family kept that gold watch until today. And so now, then he, so the Dalai Lama is musing about that. Isn't that interesting? And now, we, we had no contact. He doesn't know him at all. But he said, now that guy is the president of the country who I want to talk to. Now, him, whose dad was my friend. And I want to explain to him that we really do want to be in a union, and we really want to be of help to the China, and we, and we want to help rekindle the spirituality that will make you happy. And uh, please let us do that and stop this nonsense, you know. Those guys who are doing the old kind of, you know, crush the, crush the natives, you know, type of routine. And, and then here, when he first gets in in 212, 2012, he, he, he authorizes, well we don't know, I don't know that for a fact, but I assume this lady, who is the head of the leadership, one of the deans of the leadership school in Beijing, and she's, her specialty is the minorities, you know, policies and things, but she's a faculty, you know, a dean, and vice of that school, Borden School, and he, she gets authorized to say, this is silly, this thing, Dalai Lama is so bad, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, he's the head of the snake, we have to destroy him, blah, 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 no one should talk to him, no one give him a visa, oh, it's going to ruin us if he goes and has a, has a taco with, with a weird president, <laughs> never mind, and I won't get into that, and, and we should take him at his word, Tibet wants to be of help, they want to contribute, they don't, but, but they want their local autonomy like it's promised in our Chinese constitution, and they want to have their Buddhism, which is, you know, should be allowed, and they, and, uh, and why not? Let's talk, and then they'll be happy. We talk to their Dalai Lama, he's our friend, and he'll be our goodwill ambassador, which is my theory about them. So she makes that statement like a trial balloon. Then the old guard people 
in the Politburo and other places. Oh, never are we going to press the, you know, they go back to the old thing. And this one, this is a guy called Shu Wei Chun, who used to be head of the United Front Work Department at that time, dealing with minority. And he starts shouting in the media. And, but she doesn't lose her job. She is not busted. She is not put in the next cell to Lu Xiaobo. She still has her job and she's fine. So that means she had, she had authorization, you know. But then there's these two question marks about him. So this is, this is why this is a graphic novel. Because <laughs> I don't want to saddle Dalai Lama with this, this fantasy, you know. But I expect it. And actually, I promise, in my last thing, I know we're going to do questions, but I promise Xi Jinping, like I promised Hu Jintao, but he didn't think when my earlier book, Why the Dalai Lama Matters, I, I promised, gave him 100% guarantee, get his own Nobel Peace Prize, should he change this policy and start being nice, not just to the Tibetans, Tibetans, Uyghurs, Mongolians, Manchus, and another 52 different types of people who are actually not Han Chinese people. They are other kinds of cultures and people. To have a truly multinational, multi-ethnic, pluralistic, wonderful, federal Chinese union, you know. So I promise him a Nobel Peace Prize. Like the EU of Asia. Imagine that. What a power that would be. And then, and then Taiwan is solved. Hong Kong. They're all happy to be in union, you know. One country, many systems. No problem. What is this? Everybody has, you know, I don't know if you guys know this. You don't know that in Google, probably if you haven't been to Tibet. In Tibet, which is 1,500 miles west of Beijing, they have to be on Beijing time. So at certain times of year, the sun doesn't come up till 10 a.m. It's ridiculous. You know, they won't allow time zones because it might be like out of control. Everybody's not in the same time as the guys in Beijing. That's really silly, don't you think? It's like we'd have to, in California here, you'd have to be in Washington, D.C. time. So, like, you know, it'd be really weird. It'd be, you know, it wouldn't really work out. So anyway, but it ends, you know, then after that, it's really, it's a sad scene. Tibet is still in this lockdown situation. So then we have an epilogue where it shows the Dalai Lama fulfilling his life's missions of promoting basic kindness and human values worldwide, of getting the world religions, and he includes secular humanism and materialism. He's much more polite than I am about materialists. You know, secular humanism, considered like a world religion, scientism, you know, we call it in, in religious studies. And so we have Carl Sagan and David Bohm there, you know, we should have had Einstein, but we couldn't remember. He's not alive now. So Sagan isn't either, but he, he was, he, Dalai Lama knew him. And um, they're all friends, and we won't have any religious wars, like, you know, the one that people think is happening. And actually, Buddhists badly are doing in Burma, I'm so sorry, that's a disgrace, and we don't, we don't defend it or rationalize it in any way. And then this is Tibet as a kind of garden of the medicine Buddha, that blue Buddha. He's blue because he's looking out at human sickness. And it makes him blue. <laughs> and he wants to heal it though. And he has, he's holding a healing plant. And he knows that the plant world has the healing. Plants want to heal us, you know. They, they take all our nasty carbon dioxide and they give us back oxygen. They really like us. The plants, you know, they want to talk to us and heal us. They're very important. And then here is his vision of Tibet. When China wakes up to the asset that Tibet really is, the global asset that it really is, not just for some uranium under the soil, not just for bottling its water or cutting down all its trees or making a desert out of its steppe by grazing the wrong kind of animals on it, not the yaks. Yaks will never make a desert. That's why Tibetans with their yaks are the right people to be out there. But they're now shut, out, shut, shut, shut up by the Chinese. They're not out there with their yaks. The wrong animals are there making a desert. 
You know, yak never bites the grass. The yak doesn't graze in agricultural language, lingo, you know, terminology. A yak browses like a bookstore. They browse, they lick the grass and don't disturb the root of delicate high altitude step. You know? So this is Switzerland of Asia, in other words. China's gem of a healing park and the top of roof of the world, headwaters of all the rivers of Asia, the water tower of Asia, the great glacier of Tibet, the third pole, all this kind of thing. And it's medicine Buddha in the middle, and everybody's coming from everywhere to have a vacation and to get healthy and to go to a hot spring and to have herbal medicine and to, you know, hang out with the yaks, you know. It's really, it's really a nice vision. He's inviting everybody there. And this is, and of course, if China was really smart, and they wanted to have some black accounts, a few of the people, they could have a Switzerland there, they could start a banking system and write some good, good privacy laws, and they'd be in great shape. But anyway, never mind. That's it. Any questions? Because we're getting to the end. I have a few minutes for questions. Thank you. Thank you. So one of the terms used for the Dalai Lama is Kundun, or the presence. Yes, Kundun means the presence, right? Yeah, That's and I was, is that, I've always found that mysterious. I was wondering if you could unpack that a bit. Well, that's, a, that's the nature of the, you know, enlightenment. Well, this relates to enlightenment. What is enlightenment, you know? Westerners wrongly think that enlightenment, but I stick to the term. I don't know so much like awakening, but it's not wrong either, but I like enlightenment. But they think enlightenment means that some probably usually male guy big light bulb goes off in his head and then he walks around acting holy and like lights flow out of his head and everybody goes, oh, Guruji, yes, you need a Cadillac? Yeah, I got one for you. A Rolls Royce even. You know, that's ridiculous business, you know, authority thing. Enlightenment actually is defined as someone who realizes selflessness as a reality check, out of a reality check. In other words, it doesn't mean they don't exist. Selflessness means that you are relational, yourself is a relational construct which you're constantly either improving or it's deteriorating if you watch too much, too many commercials and too much CNN. You know, CNN creates your fear and anger and despair, and the commercials create your greed and dissatisfaction. So if you watch too much of that, your self deteriorates and becomes more frustrated and discontent. If you watch the Dharma, if you study, if you meditate, if you think about peace and love, and Google do no evil, looking through the two O's of the Google, you know, then you get better and better all the time. So it, selflessness means there's no fixed, rigid identity in there, selfless. And when you realize that, then you become interactively more selfless, meaning loving and compassionate. That's how enlightenment is defined. So you might not be glowing with light, because you might be out there healing someone or helping them or making something that, they, that, they, that helps them, you know, and, or even doing business and really making your customer happy as business is supposed to be doing, not just, just grabbing stuff from your customer, but making them happy by doing them a service, you know. And, um, so, so that's, so the presence therefore comes from the fact that the Dalai Lama is perceived by people who meet him as having a presence where when you meet, you feel enfolded in a friendly, loving presence, like a child feels when they meet their mom. You know, or or a beloved fields when they meet their beloved, uh, who hopefully loves them. <laughs> Sometimes that happens for a while, and and although don't get me wrong, I'm I'm a uh, 50th anniversary. We had this summer, me and my wife. So, so I, we have hung in there, you know. And she's the saint, you know. I'm this lucky. 
And, uh, and so the point is, the presence means this is a presence where you become, you feel like you're in a positive field, a field of uh, calm, a field of finding your own inner well-being, which is your inner happiness, not just pleasure, but inner happiness. And you feel that the world is not against you, and you feel someone who is for you, and who, who's interested in you. And who, you know, my wife once, one, one guy once asked me at a luncheon, wealthy guy who was a guru collector, he said, you've known the Dalai Lama a long time. Have you ever seen him do a miracle? I just got all excited. And, and I was, didn't know what to say. It was, I have seen a few unusual things, but you're not supposed to really talk about, so I'm going hemming and hawing. And my wife says, oh yeah, many times. And I'm, what? What is she going to say? I'm like, oh no. And, and so then, he's leaning forward in his chair and she says, I've seen him in many occasions, very busy, with a lot of people around, everybody wants a piece of him. He's like, you know, on a, on a tour or a teaching or whatever. And I have never seen him ever in any of those times fail to give his total concentration and attention to whomever he was sitting with. And that's a miracle, she says. <laughs> and the guy goes, oh, like, that's all. Oh, no. He didn't understand. I was really pleased and I was educated you know, by my final world, who, who is she, you know. <laughs> and that's what, the, that's what they call the presence, you know. Because in that presence, you feel cheered up. And so what we've tried to do, thank you for that question. So this book is the presence of the Dalai Lama. And it makes it more real that we show the difficulties that he's had. with, Not just with the Chinese, with people like Nixon, with the Brits, the Brexit people. We're going to secede from the world. You know, Give me a break. <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, yet he maintains himself as our presence, the presence, you know. And everybody feels it. But they sort of don't, even they don't know what it is. But here then they'll know what it is. And they will also realize, which is really key for our country now, that despair is not an option. And not engage, non-engagement and not voting and not participating and not keeping informed and not calling them out is not an option. Also not doing violence is, is not an option either, but being really actively engaged in making this wonderful gift of democracy that we have been given that has now crumbled and is really finished, actually, temporarily. It's now moneyocracy. There's no question. It's plutocracy. It's oligarchy. So, But it, we can still do it. We have a system where we can still do it if 80% or 85% engage fully, as Michael Moore. Michael Moore is going to run for, I don't know, fashion consultant. <laughs> I'm not sure. The dog catcher or president or senator. But so everybody has to run for everything in a friendly, joyful way, happily. Not angrily and not upset. And that's the, that's the message we all need. And this book will help you. So get the book. You'll enjoy it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom.